The Lord has richly blessed our church with a number of men who are servant-hearted, who are sound, and who love to serve others. And uh, we really are blessed in our church for the number of men that we have um, that that fit that characterization. Uh, There are some churches two and three times our size that would love to have the male leadership that we see here at North Hills. And I'm honored to be able to pastor you men. Um, you ladies too, but I'm talking about the men right at the moment. Um, uh, but uh, I am, I'm especially delighted that God has brought to our midst uh, folks that uh, can handle the word skillfully and are committed to serving others. And uh, you folks know the Fishers well and dearly love them. And I always enjoy when I get to hear uh, Brother Fisher, Chaplain Fisher, Colonel Fisher, whatever he entirely wants to go by, um, open the Word and share his heart with us. And I know that it comes not only from a man, man who handles the Word soundly, uh, but also backs that up in his life and character. So, Brother Fisher, come if you would, please, and share God's Word with us. Amen. <laughs> The, uh, I invite you to turn in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 2. This message is kind of born out of recent events and circumstances in our country and also on Fort Hood. Um, most of you are probably tracking in the news the emotion and the uh, sadness surrounding the death and murder of Vanessa Guillen, a soldier in 3CR. Um, the challenge is, is as an army, you know, the dignity and respect for one another, um, taking care of one another, not leaving a fallen comrade behind, um, this circumstance of her death and the subsequent investigation and finding her remains and, and all the things surrounding this event just grieves my heart. Um, I often remind my staff that, you know, these circumstances surrounding her death Um, is an important conversation to have because our soldiers are under a lot of stress. We ask them to do a lot. Our families are under a lot of pressure. Uh, And there's issues and challenges not just in the Army institution but in our society at large. So whether it's sexual assault or whether it's harassment, um, it's an important discussion to have. We need to have workplaces and churches and families that are safe and healthful environments where we can grow together in Christ, uh, but also serve one another regardless of each other's religious beliefs. And Chris and I and Andrew uh, cherish this church. Um, it came in our lives in a very important transition that was stressful in and of itself, moving from northern New York to come down to uh, mild summer here in central Texas to move and to go to school at UT for a year. And then the Army, in its wisdom, sent us back to New York um, for less than a year and then sent us uh, back here to Fort Hood. So our first inclination when we heard the news is that we can be, again, um, part of the local congregation here at North Hills. I hope you know how special this church is and how fortunate you are to have Pastor V and his family and Pastor Dan and his family as well, dedicated and faithful Uh, to the Great Commission. So here in 2 Peter, having explained the importance of obeying God's Word at the end of chapter 1, Peter gives us a picture of what it looks like to live daily life. 
He made us His people so that we can proclaim His praises, to walk as He walked, to live as He lived. And I'm struck by the verse in 21, the phrase that says, uh, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we, that you should follow His steps. Follow His steps. Go back up to verse 9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So these concepts are great, grand, and glorious until you have to live them in a culture that's counter everything you believe. And whatever you stand for, the culture seems to be against it today. So what happens if the culture is against us? What happens if they became angry at our message? I work in the Army, as you know, and it's increasingly uh, a place that is less open to faith, walk, and practice, and perhaps even at times hostile to faith. So what do we do? Our world is rapidly changing, if you haven't recognized that. Author and evangelical scholar Robert Alden wrote, that since 1955, sheer factual knowledge has doubled every five years. Our generation possesses more data about the universe and human personality than all the previous generations put together. We all have these smart devices that are portals into knowledge and facts and information that are boundless almost. So where most of us, when we were growing up, if we were curious about something, we went to the library or we talk to a person, a man or a woman, about what that was to satisfy our curiosity. Now we can go to YouTube and learn how to fix things or break things and then fix it again. So there's things that are available to us that other generations would be just envious. In my current job, I have to process at least thousands and thousands of pages or, well, I would say hundreds of pages of data a day. It requires a bandwidth to be able to skim, to read, to pick out what is important. There's 240 unit ministry teams in three core. That is a lot of information and a lot of activity. As I reflect on that, high school graduates today, even in 2020, with the strange way their year had ended, their senior year with graduations in the backyards or in driveways or drive-by, graduations or no graduations at all, they have been exposed to more information in the world than Plato, Aristotle, and even the apostles combined. In terms of technical facts, neither Aristotle nor the apostle Paul would be able to pass most college entrance exams today. Alden wrote this in 1983. A recent report by the education secretary informed us, or back in the 90s, informed us that by the year 2000, technical knowledge would double every two years. And now get this, by 2010, it says it would double every 72 hours. And it was estimated in 2010 that by 2017, it would double every 12 hours. I make this point because it doesn't mean the world is getting smarter. It doesn't mean that because information and technical knowledge is doubling every 12 hours or less, 
means that we're any wiser. One author put it this way, as far as progress, you know, college students holding are going to hold jobs that haven't been created yet, using technologies that haven't been invented yet. And this world is not wiser because of all that knowledge. One of the amazing things about the inspired scriptures is the fact that God provides us instructions that were important for the first century and the 21st century regarding the real issues of life. They never get out of date. I would say technology changes and cultures and countries change and political leaders and governments rise and fall. God's Word not only endures but continues to equip you in the 21st century and is as relevant with His wisdom and His Word equipping believers today as it was in the first century when Peter wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. One of the issues that these early believers were dealing with was how to respond to the role as citizens of Rome, while at the same time being a citizen of heaven. Their government and culture around them was hostile toward them, and their existence and faith, walk, and practice was difficult. Slander, misrepresentation, marginalization of Christians had become all the rage. How are they to respond and live wisely? If we ask these same questions today like never before, how does the Christian respond in a culture where the American Civil Liberties Union and the Americans for the Separation Church and State join a chorus of so many others that have been successfully educating a generation of Americans who believe that freedom of religion means actually freedom from religion? Freedom from any kind of religious influence. Your religious beliefs need to be kept at home and by all means kept quiet. So prayer is banished from the city council meetings, football games, graduations. References to God and valedictorian speeches aren't allowed. Copies and monuments of the Ten Commandments come down from courtroom walls and out in front of city hall. How do we live in a generation that is desperately attempting to erase any mention of the Creator God or His enduring Word? I've often been grateful for verses of scriptures and acknowledgement to God that have been chiseled into the stonework of many national monuments. I had the privilege of praying for in the Senate chamber for the opening of the State Senate of the State of New York. Very gorgeous chamber, uh, gilded with gold and fine stonework. And over on the left, above the fireplace, is the Ten Commandments. If you were to pass a law in the state of New York to put the Ten Commandments in that chamber today, I dare say that I have a bridge in Brooklyn that I'd like to sell you. You can't do it. But there it is inscribed for generations. That is until they sandblasted away. The question remains, how do we live in a culture like this? The Apostle Peter is in the process of delivering an answer in chapter 2. We're only going to take a small look or a short look at just a couple of verses, but the whole chapter is worth our attention. 
Peter writes in verse 13, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every ordinance or human institution, he says, whether to a king as supreme or the one that's in authority. Or to governors, verse 14, he's sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or the praise of those who do right. That's a job description from God for our government. Punishing evil living and praising right living. Verse 15, for such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. In other words, live with, uh, live with those around you toward silencing the attitude of submission to the just law in such a way that there's no way they can slander you. Your walk with God is such that they see that you're upright. Now for today, Paul delivers even more rapid-fire instructions. In fact, what I want to do is separate them into seven different instructions, and we'll go quickly. Verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And our text for today, as free, not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the King. Let's pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, You have ordained for us to live in such a time as this, that we can be light in darkness. But Lord, help us as a Christian people to know how we ought to live. Lord, help us to apply to our hearts and our lives these practical statements of wisdom and counsel that we, if we find ourselves in a situation, uh, know how to respond. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Be with us now. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. So number one, as we begin, is simply this. No matter how it feels, you actually are free. Notice in verse 16, it begins to tell us to act like free men. Free men and women. In other words, no matter how restrictive or repressive your government or even your culture may be, you've been assigned by God to live and to serve as free men and women. We are free. Don't ever forget that you're the, you're the one that's actually free. Think about it. You've been freed from the condemnation and judgment that comes from the eternal penalties of sin. Having been set free from sin, it says in Romans 6, for He, Christ, delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of His Son, of His love, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, Colossians chapter 1. Therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed, John 8. You're the one who's free, and the bonds you might wear have no strength to hold you. They will soon be replaced with the glory of who you really are and who you truly belong to. So act as free men. Number two, secondly, never use your freedom to run wild. Notice in verse 16, act as free men. Yet, not using liberty or freedom as a cloak of vice or a covering of evil, the word Paul here uses covering as a veil or a cloak, covering thrown over something to try to conceal it. It carries the idea of a mask, and we all have a Ph.D. in masks now after months and months of COVID-19. 
In other words, don't conceal your sin behind a mask of Christian liberty. Don't veil your sin behind religious jargon of religious liberty and freedom. There is perhaps no doctrine as easy, perverted, and misinterpreted as that of Christian freedom. Which is why I think Paul or Peter here seems so quick to add this caution in his list. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in Galatians when he warned them not to use their liberty as an occasion for the flesh. Peter will warn the believers in his second letter about the fact that they're promising others liberty and are actually enslaved to their own corruption. Being free doesn't mean that we carry and party on with anything goes. Paul wrote in Corinthians that uh, who evidently adopted the slogan, all things are lawful for me. And that slogan has, of course, plunged many into an array of sexual activity and tolerance. But Paul wrote it to balance these words. All things are lawful, but not everything is helpful or beneficial. William Barclay comments on this text here that our freedom in Christ doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we'd like to do. It means that we're free to do whatever we ought to do. Which is exactly why Peter adds even more balance to this wise counsel by giving us number three. Remember, you have been freed only to be mastered by Christ. Notice Peter writes again in verse 16, as free men act, yet not using liberty or freedom as a cloak of vice or covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. The word Peter uses here for bond slave is more bluntly rendered slave. It's defined the lowest level of servitude in the Greco-Roman world, yet for the believers, it describes a joyous freedom of those who are now under the mastery of Christ. This is the paradox of our Christianity. We have been freed from the bondage of sin and death only to become a slave to Jesus Christ and what a master He is. This actually is the paradox of life for all of us. Everyone is under the mastery of something. Everyone is a slave to whatever it is that demands from them their highest allegiance. The question is, are you a slave? Well, that's not the question. The question is, whose slave are you? You're either a slave to your own will and your own life, your own career, your own plans, your own desires, your own body, your own intellect, or you're a slave under the mastery of Christ and you have given Him your will, you've given Him your life, your career, your plans, your desires, your body, and your intellect. So whose slave are you today? Who masters you? I think when people start treating me like a slave is when the real answer is revealed in my own life. Peter is effectively implying that as slaves of Jesus Christ, we make the best citizens. That's true in the first century and it's true today. Citizens of the kingdom of God produce the greatest service to the kingdoms of this earth. And now with that, Peter picks up the speed and delivers some four short, quick commands to add to his wise counsel for Christian citizens. Number four, no matter what, show respect for everyone. So no matter what, show respect for everyone. Honor all people, literally all human beings. He isn't telling us to honor everything human beings do. 
but showed a respect for all human beings. Why? Because we believe that every human being has been created in the image of God. I could spend a few minutes and talk about the strangest counseling sessions I've ever had as a chaplain in the United States Army. People who struggle with their own sexual identity, their own identity as a person, um, the depths of lostness in our society and in human beings is not lost on me. But we are to honor all people as valuable. The word honor here means to treat them as valuable. The immortal creatures that God created them to be, we treat them no matter who they are with a sense of respect knowing that God has created them according to His purposes and they have an inherent worth and eternal value in His kingdom. This is the same word, by the way, that Christ used in His message in Matthew 15, where we are told, where He told His audience to honor their father and mother. The same word. Don't treat them selfishly. Don't mistreat them. Don't discard them. Don't use them for financial gain. Treat them with respect. The idea of honoring every human being um, was an amazing thought to these original readers of this letter. Their world was an incredible, calloused place. Their view of life was pretty low. When Peter wrote this le letter, there was at least 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Life was cheap, but our gospel changed everything. The gospel changed everyone's perspective on everyone else. A powerful message in light of our nation's discussion and unrest about race. No matter what someone's station in life, or their color, or ethnicity, or economic standing, honor every human being. The command is incredibly profound. Listen, the world in Peter's day and our day ought to know that they have met a Christian that they're going to meet a person who shows respect to everyone in the office, that classroom, that neighborhood, no matter what. It ought to become the reputation of genuine Christianity, that we love everyone, that we respect everyone, that we treat everybody with dignity and respect. I, I love the way one man posed this issue to an atheist that he was debating. He asked the question of this Oxford philosopher and professor by the name of Jonathan Glover. Now, I've taken some liberties to bring it up today. If you, Professor Glover, were stranded at midnight in a desolate downtown street, and if we were to say that the police were defunded, <laughs> as you step out of your broken-down vehicle with fear and trembling, you suddenly hear the sounds of pounding footsteps and laughter coming towards you. And you see 10 burly young men bounding towards you. You don't know their intentions. Who had just stepped out of a nearby building and were coming in your direction? Would it, would it not make a difference, Professor, if you knew that they were coming from a midweek Bible study? The fact of the matter is, Christianity should make a difference. That when we reached someone to help them, that they know they've come in, in contact with a Christian. That should be, we should be respectful of everyone. Edmund Hybert wrote in his outstanding New Testament commentary that this one command alone 
is enough. Listen, it is enough to deal mortal blow to any kind of racial conflict. We treat no one with scorn or contempt, but with respect and dignity. Racial hatred can only be explained by Satan's influence in this world. His influence upon our hearts uh, in uh, hearts of the unredeemed. And I end this point with an illustration from Hitler in the Third Reich. They tried to stamp out an entire race and culture. But we have met Jews, haven't we? At the end of World War II, after all the atrocities and Holocaust were fully revealed, Hitler's lieutenants were brought to trial for their crimes and primarily the murder of millions of Jews. Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi leader, and I quote, said this, I shall leap in my grave over the thought that I have five million lives in my conscience. That is to me a source of an inordinate satisfaction. Wow. The cure of this level of hate will not be more education, will not be a new job, will not be a new stimulus check, it will not be increased funding for social workers or even taking down statues. The cure is and will always be salvation in Jesus Christ alone and a new heart. Peter says, I want Christian citizens everywhere to demonstrate this new heart by showing respect for every human being. Number five, don't forget to love your church deeply. You might have thought this command should be higher on the list. Peter would have put it higher, but God didn't. Here it is, verse 17. Honor all people, love the brotherhood. This term brotherhood is found only two times in the New Testament. Both times it's found in Peter's letters. He views all believers as a collective unit, a unity. This is Peter's term for the church. And here's what Peter's doing. He knows that we will naturally show respect to those who show respect to us. We will kindly treat those neighbors who kindly treat us kindly. But Paul broaden, or Peter broadens that to a command to show respect and kindness to every human being we encounter simply because of the fact that we're created by God, regardless of their response or the attitudes they give us back, and that's much easier to read in the text than it is to obey in life. Love those in the church that love us back. Well, even those that don't love us back. Love those who find we find lovely. But again, Peter broadens it so that he's commanding for every believer to love every other believer simply because the fact that we're in a brotherhood together. They're members of the family. And the verb Peter uses here is the strongest form of love and commitment and covenant love on the planet. It defines disunity. It, de it denies self. It seeks to serve instead of being served. It is the love of Christ demonstrated as he died to pay the ransom for our sin and to pay the ransom for his church. So we are commanded to love deeply those ones who deeply love Christ. And there's no other qualifiers there. Some people are hard to love, but they follow Christ and you follow Christ and we are commanded to love them. How in the world will we ever get this kind of relationship with other people? And that leads us to our next point. Only when we have a certain kind of reverence for our God. 
Number six, in all you do, live in awe of God. In verse 17, honor all people, love the brotherhood. And then he says, fear God. To fear God is to revere Him. It is to prioritize God. In fact, if you're not sure who comes first in your life, God or you, all of your life is pretty muddled. And you're the double-minded man who's unstable in all his ways, it speaks of in James chapter 1. In other words, life gets all muddled up whenever someone refuses to make up their mind as who comes first in their life. Our daily devotions and our time in the Word of God is a constant encouragement to keep God as a priority in our life. We, because any time a Christian can slip back into placing themselves first, Paul writes it, or Peter writes it in such a way, don't stop revering God. Don't stop putting God first based on the language of the text. The relationship, that relationship isn't first, then that desire isn't first, and then that goal isn't first. And if that relationship or desire or that goal means that God has to be sidelined and forgotten, you better get rid of that relationship or whatever that is in your life that's taking preeminence instead of God. What does it look like to fear God? Well, let me give you three characteristics quickly on what it looks like to fear God. It's centered on the Word of God. First, there is a hunger to read the Word of God. There is a hunger to read the Word of God. David wrote, How blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. He also writes, How sweet are the words to my taste, yes, sweeter than the honeycomb to my mouth. Okay, so one who fears God wants to read His Word. To put it even more simply... You're not really reverencing unless you're really reading His Word. It's a necessary habit. But the fear of the Lord is more than just reading the Word of God. It is a desire, secondly, to apply it. So are we applying the truth of the Word of God? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord who walks in His ways. You have to walk in it. You have to have a desire to apply it. Solomon spelled it out in Proverbs. He who walks in uprightness fears the Lord. So a person who fears the Lord not only reads the Word and applies the truth or pri- applies the truth of the Word. So you have to hunger for the Word of God. You have to desire to apply the Word of God. And number three, you have to have confidence in the Word of God. The Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindnesses. David draws a relationship between fearing the Lord and waiting on the promises and provisions of our God through Jesus Christ. Even if they are long in coming, it means that we fear the Lord. Now, Peter gives us one more wise counsel, but let me review. Number one, no matter how it feels, act like you're free because you really are. Second, never use your freedom to run wild. Number three, you've been freed only to be mastered by Christ. Number four, no matter what, show respect for everyone. And fifth, don't forget to love the church deeply, the brotherhood of Christ. And six, in all you do, live in awe of God. And then one more. Number seven, no matter who it is, show respect for those in authority. We come full circle as Paul writes this, honor the king. There's a little irony and perhaps even humor in the mind of Peter, I think. 
because he uses the same verb he used earlier where he commanded us to honor all people. Peter is probably smiling as he writes, listen, even though the emperor thinks he's divine, he's just really another human being like the rest of us. But don't leave him out either, which is easy to do. Treat him with respect as well, not just as an object to satisfy, to give you whatever you want, but God has appointed and commissioned ordained rulers over us who will, by the hand of God, accomplish whatever God wants to accomplish, even if they don't even recognize him as God. You see, Nero might be ruling at this time, but God was always overruling. So give respect to his office as much as you can. An excellent illustration of this and why I chose to close with this is Paul standing before Ananias the high priest, a scoundrel, a wicked hypocrite. That takes us back to Acts, which will be there in a couple of weeks, this passage. He was hiding behind the mask of piety and religiosity. He planned to kill Paul as well, but before the mob of Jews could reach him, Paul was rescued by Roman guards. And sometime later, Paul stood before Ananias in the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews at the time. And Paul begins to speak to the court and he says, Brethren, I have lived my life with perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. The high priest Ananias commanded those standing behind him to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul, after he was struck, said this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit to try me according to the law in the violation of that very law? Order me to be struck. So Paul, in a very courageous response to being struck, strikes out at his judge and accuser. In other words, how dare you violate the law by ordering me to be struck in the mouth in this very courtroom that is supposedly being up, uh, upholding the law. But the bystanders did something curious. They say, Paul, do not revile God's high priest. Evidently, Paul did not recognize who had given the actual order. And what you might think that Paul would do now is to really dig in his heels and raise the level of animosity and anger toward the high priest, but he didn't. Instead, he apologizes and says, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for you shall not speak evil of a ruler. Now, Paul's response here delivers a volume of implications that we can't go into here. Yet he didn't yell louder. He did not threaten his authority. He didn't come unhinged. Instead, he apologized, offered respect and deference for the simple fact of the position of authority that this man held. I, can, I, I also can't help but think about Daniel in the Old Testament, a wonderful illustration. Daniel was abducted by a foreign country. He would never return home, even after 80 years of faithful service to three different kings. But he always addressed Nebuchadnezzar in terms of respectful, identified, or respect that was identified by his rank of royalty. David, even later, gave the wicked king uh, Belshazzar his proper title when he spoke to him. Daniel treated each with respect, even King Darius. And even after Darius capitulated to political pressure and threw him in the lion's den. 
In the end, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius both came to an acknowledgement of the glory and the majesty of Yahweh. So how are we supposed to act toward those in our culture, in our church, and positions of leadership? One of the things I've really appreciated about North Hills Baptist Church and makes it unique, the pastor has us as a congregation pray for our government officials, our leadership by name every week. Well, listen to the word of the Lord today. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And who knows? Perhaps some of us will, some others will watch our attitudes and our responses and come to investigate what makes this people different. And perhaps even join us or join you as we are worshiping and revering and honoring the true and living God. Nothing holds us back in our ministry. Just because we can't do something that we want to do in ministry doesn't mean we're being held back. Perhaps God has another way. He wants us to go with the gospel. I don't know about you, but I'm easily discouraged. But what encourages me to know is that it doesn't depend on me, but I have to depend on Him. Let us pray. Our precious Heavenly Father, thank You for the opportunity to look into Your Word this week. I appreciate this pastor and I appreciate this church. And Lord, I just pray that You would work in us Your work. May we truly be a people that is distinctively different. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.